Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You may be used to celebrating Labor Day in early September, but May 1st is known as International Labor Day, or May Day. While May Day may draw its roots from a pagan holiday pinned to spring's arrival, it also has a more modern incarnation, inspired by the fight for an eight-hour workday in Chicago and not long after here in Connecticut. We'll dig into this history ahead with Fairfield University professor Cecilia Bucky. But first, we check in on some of the recently formed unions where we live and revisit the rise in union elections filed with the National Labor Review Board, or NLRB. And here to help us break all of us down and help us understand what's been going on recently is Andrea Shu. She's NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Andrea. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Andrea, there's more than 300 Starbucks locations that has unionized across the country, including three right here in Connecticut. But I want to ask, you know, where does that groundswell of unionization stand now? Well, it is quite a remarkable feat for the union when you think about it. 300 stores in um, about a year and a half now um, that have unionized. But when you look at the bigger picture, you really see what the challenges are for the union. Uh, for one thing, um, this year, the pace of unionizing these stores has definitely slowed. Uh, from January this year, about 50 stores have petitioned for unions, meaning they have enough support among the staff in their store to um, ask for a union election. A year ago, there were that many stores petitioning for unions in just one month. So I think the pace of organizing has slowed at Starbucks, although there continues to be a lot of interest. I think one of the problems that the union is facing is that none of these stores has yet to negotiate a contract. And that's really sort of the the point of unionizing, right? You want to uh, union members want to come together uh, to band together to collectively bargain for a contract for for what they hope is better conditions than the company would offer them on its own. Now, each side, the union and Starbucks, each side has accused the other of not bargaining in good faith, um, and so those negotiations have really been kind of stuck um, and haven't gone anywhere. So I think that at other stores where, you know, um, staff may feel, you know, concerned for their jobs if they, if they, you know, if they try to unionize, um, they may say, well, you know, I'm not seeing that the stores that have unionized have gotten anything or much out of it yet. So maybe I don't want to participate in this, in this campaign. So I think that's one of the, the challenges that the union is facing right now. And you've also reported recently um, on the D.C. hearing with Starbucks' CEO, Howard Schultz, you know, and employees from Connecticut also attended that hearing. What can you share about that experience? And do you know where do those ne- negotiations stand now? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders had been trying to get Howard Schultz to come testify on Capitol Hill for some time now. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, of course, being a champion of unions, um, he wanted to bring Howard Schultz in to, to answer questions about all of what um, Sanders calls, you know, Schultz and Starbucks's union busting campaign. So, um, you know, he had threatened to subpoena Howard Schultz. Finally, Howard Schultz um, agreed to come testify right after actually he stepped down from being CEO of the company. And, you know, the hearing was um, it was pretty contentious. It was, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and the Democrats pressed Howard Schultz on all the um, all their anti-union activities and pointed out that federal labor officials have found that Starbucks violated the law in, you know, doing things like threatening um, Starbucks employees um, who were trying to unionize, even firing some employees who were uh, involved in organizing the union activities. Howard Schultz um, sat there and, you know, under oath said, you know, we are not, I'm not a union buster. We have not violated the law. And uh, it just, you know, you could kind of see why this campaign is stuck the way it is. Um, because the two sides each see this very different ways. Um, how, Bernie Sanders tried to press Howard Schultz on whether he would commit to, you know, Starbucks exchanging contract proposals with the union within 14 days. Howard Schultz said he wasn't going to do that. So, you know, I'm not sure what came out of that hearing, except, you know, Bernie Sanders got a chance to do some public shaming of Howard Schultz and Howard Schultz got to sit up there and talk about the good benefits and salaries that Starbucks offers um, I, I don't think it really moved the needle on, you know, in terms of the in terms of the negotiations between the union and Starbucks. Well, we're going to hear from a uh, an employer or an employee of Starbucks here in Connecticut in a second. But I do want to ask just based on what you're saying, have you heard any reactions from from employees um, from the hearing? You know, like, you, you know, we've been talking just the last five minutes. We we're talking about this has stalled. It's slowed down. And maybe enthusiasm has sort of diminished a little bit, but what are, what are you what are you hearing from the people? I think there's a lot of frustration and a lot of anger towards Starbucks. You know, I think it was, it was a few days after that hearing that Starbucks fired some more um, employees at union stores. And I mean, Starbucks always says, and, Star- and Howard Schultz said, you know, while he was testifying that these employees are fired for cause, that they've violated company policy somehow. But I think that the, the you know, for, for baristas at stores who are really feeling the pressure of the anti-union activities that the company has has put on them. I think that they sort of fueled their outrage. And we also heard from Travis Glennie Tegmeyer, who works at the Corbin's Corner location here in West Hartford, this is, which is the first in the state to unionize last year. And he talked about a little a little bit about this. So let's take a listen. Our issue here is that they aren't at all. They aren't allowing the national board to be involved with the negotiation at all. Um, they are trying to separate us out into individual stores. This was all done in a store by store basis. Um, obviously, we don't want that. We want to bargain as a one unit. And so our what we did and will do if this happens again is go into each meeting and read the same list of demands at each of the meetings with the uh, Starbucks corporate to just, you know, to show that our, we are prepared to do this together and only together and we will not be split up. Andrea, what's your response to what um, Travis has to say? You know, we've been talking about 
people are interested in doing this, but there's a lot of slowdown. But now you have Travis saying, you know, we gotta we gotta come together as one. You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, this is an issue that dates back to the beginning of this um, union campaign at Starbucks. So originally, you know, the the union was organizing the stores one by one. So each store might have twenty or twenty five people. And um, to, you know, to win a union election among a smaller staff like that is easier than winning, you know, at, you know, like a, a big, you know, a bigger employer where you have to get more people on board. So Starbucks had actually challenged the union originally and said, you cannot hold these union elections at individual stores. You have to hold them across an entire region of stores. And the union fought that and, and won. And so the, the elections have taken place store by store. Now the union wants to... Um, you know, because they're asking for the same things at every store, they want to be able to uh, negotiate a contract, a national contract, or, a, you know, re- at least regional contracts. I'm not I'm not sure which, but they want to organize more than across, you know, more than just at individual stores. But Starbucks has told them, well, you wanted to do these elections store by store. So therefore, we are going to do the negotiations store by store. So that's the issue that Travis is getting at that. Another thing is that the union has wanted to do the negotiations hybrid, so having some people at the table and some people on Zoom. And Starbucks has has objected to that. And Howard Schultz raised this in that hearing on Capitol Hill. He said, you know, we don't know who's recording these meetings. We don't know, you know, who these people are at the meetings. He said that their managers had been um, harassed. Yeah, I guess managers who had taken part in those negotiations had been harassed. So he said, for safety concerns, we are not going to do these negotiations over Zoom. And this, interestingly, has been an issue in other in other union negotiations as well, including at Trader Joe's. And I want to ask you really briefly, too, is there anything you can share with us about another push for unionization at some Amazon warehouses? Yeah, so right at Amazon, um, it was just over a year ago that they won this historic, the union won a historic election on Staten Island and unionized a warehouse of 8,000 some people. Now, it's been more than a year and Amazon has yet to recognize that union, even though federal labor officials have ordered them to. So, you know, that's still sort of pending as as it makes its way through, you know, various appeals processes. Meanwhile, there have been efforts by other Amazon workers all over the U.S. to, to unionize warehouses in North Carolina and Minnesota and California and an air hub in Kentucky. They've all you know, talked about trying to unionize. But so far, we haven't seen any of those campaigns get enough support to um, petition for a union election. You think about it, it's really hard to organize at like a giant warehouse like like, you know, Amazon's. And these are places where workers, you know, are split across different shifts, night shifts, weekend shifts. Um, there's and also there's very, very high turnover. So, you know, it's it's really hard to get enough um, support to 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 get the you know signatures you need for a union election and then to get people to turn out and vote. So it's been really a big challenge at Amazon and you know, including it, that within the the Amazon labor union itself, there have been some disagreements among the leadership. It's just, it just kind of shows how hard it is to unionize in this country still. What I was going to say, it sounds like there are just so many moving parts. And, you know, some people want to do it, some people don't want to do it for all very good reasons. And And I guess from your standpoint with reporting, can you tell us any next steps? Are we waiting for these organizations to have more of a momentum? Or do you think it's kind of slowing down because they're not able to get these contracts and have good negotiations? Well, you know, researchers I've talked to, follow, you know, re- labor historians and sociologists say they're, 
they're sort of, um, they've told me they're kind of pleasantly surprised at how much workers have been able to accomplish given labor law is, you know, really favors employers in that, um, you know, it's very, employ- there's, there's a long appeals process, there's lots of ways that employers can delay the union process by appealing various decisions. Um, also, it's like, you know, I mentioned the high turnover issue at, at places like warehouses. And um, one of the biggest challenges is that federal labor officials, while they can cite companies for violating labor law, there are no fines involved. There are no penalties, you know, civil penalties. And so, for example, the National Labor Relations Board has found in in many, many instances that Starbucks has violated labor law, but all they can do is order Starbucks to, um, you know, they're called make whole remedies. So in in an instance where Starbucks fired somebody, um, you know, Starbucks will say, well, this was for, you know, violating company policy. The union says, well, no, this person was a lead organizer. That's why they were fired. The most that they've been able to do so far is to get that person reinstated. There's no fine. And so labor historians say, well, you know, this is just a cost of doing business for companies. So it's, it's you know I, I I don't know really what to expect. It seems like the enthusiasm for unions remains high, and public approval for unions is at a sixty-year high. I think Gallup put it at seventy-one percent of Americans approve of unions right now. At the same time, the share of U.S. workers who are union members hasn't grown. In fact, I think it fell slightly last year. So it's just we're at a point where you know it's only one in ten. American workers is a union member that's down, you know, it's half of what it was 40 years ago. And so, go ahead. I was just saying just real quickly on that note, you know, what can you tell us about the surge in student unions that we're seeing here in the U.S. and why is that unique compared to some other unions? Yeah, so organizing on college campuses by um, grad students and undergraduate students, we've really seen a surge in that since Biden took office. And that's in part because, um, you know, of a 2016 decision by the National Labor Relations Board involving grad students at Columbia University, the NLRB ruled that that grad students do have a right to um, organize and to collective bargaining. The Trump administration tried to roll that back with a rule, but the Biden administration withdrew that proposed rule. So uh, organizing on college campuses has really, you know, taken off. Now, it's not without its own challenges. Um, Right now, Duke University um, is challenging, uh, you know, saying grad students, um, you know, are not, should not be classified as employees. They're challenging that NLRB ruling from 2016. Duke says, you know, sees its relationship with students as, you know, being about education and training and mentorship, which is, they say it's different from the relationship between an employer and employee. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see where that case goes. But we have seen, as you said, lots and lots of organizing on on university campuses. And, um, you know, since last year alone, there have been 20 union elections that the union has won in every case and covering about 25,000 um, graduate and undergraduate student workers. When I was going to say that's the perfect transition to my next question, and we're actually going to bring in a student. Uh, Connecticut is no exception with this. Wesley informed what is reportedly the first undergraduate union in the country last year, and students working in dining on campus recently also followed suit. And in January, Yale University graduate students formed Local 33. And joining us now to discuss that whole experience 
experience is Arita Archeria, who's an organizer with Local 33 and a graduate researcher in genetics. Thank you so much for joining us, Arita. Hi, thank you for having me. So WSHU and Fairfield reported on Local 33's formation back in February, and the headline had read, Recognizing a grad student union at Yale has been a long time coming. Um, Arita, can you give us a sense of this sort of back and forth that's been going on for decades? Yeah, um, so graduate workers on this campus have been trying to unionize for a very long time, for three plus decades. Uh, And as you gestured to, it's been a long, hard fight. Um, For much of that time, the university administration was against the formation of this union. Um, This time around, we, uh, you know, we talked to our colleagues and we organized really strongly and uh, fortunately, after our election, uh, the university has now, um, you know, recognized our union and has agreed to bargain in good faith. And so we're excited to be able to go forward and make progress in improving our working conditions. So we've been hearing a lot about bad faith negotiations and the fact that Yale's president has sent an email to the university community explaining the agreement and the whole process. You told WSHU that this was really important. Can you help us understand why was that? Yeah, it was uh, it was really heartening to receive that email from President Salovey back in January. Uh, as I gestured to before, um, you know, Yale University has not always uh, been this, <laughs> has not always uh, recognized the union. Uh, during previous attempts at unionization, they used, you know, anti-union tactics to try and discourage this process from occurring. So to see them accept the, you know, pretty conclusive results of our election where 91% of voters voted union yes was really heartening. Andrea, I want to bring you in just real quickly to respond to what Anita just shared. Yeah, I think that, you know, she mentioned the 91%. I think on on campuses, we are seeing, you know, a real groundswell of support for for unions. And I think I mentioned before, Gallup found that, you know, unions you know, are are really popular right now, that 71% of Americans approve of unions. And I think that's being driven a lot by young people who are really responding to, um, you know, what they see as is injustices, that the, the pay is too low, that cost of living is so high. Arita, I don't know if this is an issue where you are, but it's, you know, I've heard a lot of students talk about how the cost of housing is so high and, and their daily expenses are so high um, and so that they should be paid more. And so I, 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 I gather that's why you know, that, that some of what's driving um, interest in unions on campuses, although you know there are a lot of a lot of issues around um, working conditions, and you know just ways that the universities handle um, problems, um, you know, is also being issues at the heart of those campaigns. And Arita, I know you know, I know you know, I we know you can't speak on ongoing negotiations, but how would you sort of characterize what having a union has afforded as far as bringing in those good faith negotiations and why is it that so important? Yeah, um, so as you said, I, I, I can't talk about current negotiations, but um, you know, I have spent the last year, more than a year, talking to my coworkers about what can be, what can change about work on this campus, right? So I'm a graduate researcher in the genetics department. Um, I work in a lab that studies congenital disorders. Uh, so I work with data from 
patients who are born with pretty severe congenital disorders and try and figure out what mutations are causing their disorders. And, you know, this is the kind of research uh, that makes Yale University famous, right? I also teach classes and teach, you know, undergrads and graduate students here. And Yale being an educational institute, this is, you know, this is uh, work that's essential to their education and research missions, right? Uh, and I think it's been really important during our organizing um, that people have been people have uh, are recognizing themselves as important workers on this campus and realizing that you know we deserve to be able to live our lives financially secure and being able to save for the future and pay our rents and be able to take care of our physical and mental health and be in workplaces free from abuse and harassment. Um, you know, as Andrea mentioned before, rising costs of living are uh, really a factor. I'm renegotiating my lease right now uh, for my apartment next year. And, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of worried about my rent increase that's going to be happening. My rent has increased a lot since I've come here to New Haven. And so actually having a salary and wages that match that rising cost of living that we've seen with inflation over the last several years is really important to me um, and is something that's come up in many of my conversations. And so I think many of us are hopeful that we can really improve the conditions of work here, not just um, in terms of economic things like healthcare and, um, and wages, but also just improving the dignity and standard of our experience in the actual workplace. Well, and following those thoughts, we also spoke with David Hammer-Hodge, who is an organizer with the recently formed Wesleyan Union of Student Employees, who touched on what unionization changes for them. Let's take a listen. That's what gets you a seat at the table. Um, that's what gets you the power to bargain contracts. That's what gets you the ability to, you know, overcome the resources and the legal guns of a employer that doesn't want to come to a first agreement, that doesn't want to bargain with people, that doesn't want to necessarily view uh, students as workers while treating them as, as labor. And so, you know, I do think that the organizing itself, there's a reason that it's happening as much as it is. We have now uh, probably as a, as a local, I think we have seven or eight RA units, uh, one contract done, but in bargaining with several others. And a lot of this is, is trying to get uh, these, these workers to understand sort of what organizing is about and how it's about power and how it's about taking a seat at the table and not asking for crumbs. In doing, and in organizing, that, that's what's happening, right? So I think that we are getting to the table. We're getting agreements. We're getting TAs. We're moving things forward. And Arita, Davis spoke to the fact that their status as students made organizing just a little more difficult. Does this sound familiar to you? Um, I know both Yale and Wesleyan are, of course, prestigious and expensive universities, but is there a perception that there is not economic diversity on campus that you had to contend with? <laughs> yeah, that, that does really speak to me, I think. Um, workers, student workers on campuses across this country have been facing some version of you are students not employees for a very long time but 
I think the work that I do on this campus is undeniably important. Yale touts the important biomedical research that occurs here in their laboratories um, all the time. Uh, you know, New Haven is a growing biotech hub and graduate workers in biology labs like mine are, you know, essential workers in or vital workers in that field. Uh, and that, you know, that's not even getting to the teaching work that we do. And so, you know, I I am here to learn and I, I really am excited and love to learn about my science. But at the same time, I know that the work I do is valuable for this university. And so I think I have the right to, you know, be able to have a say and a seat at the table uh, when it comes to my deciding my working conditions. And, you know, this university is, as you said, it's a it's a rich university. Yale has a really large endowment. And I think the way it treats its workers, uh, whether that's, you know, its staff, its faculty, or its its student workers, um, the way the way they treat their workers really affects not just the conditions of work for those workers, but also for but also affects uh, the city that we're housed in. And, you know, Yale is a Yale is a university that can definitely afford to treat their workers well. And Andrea, we've got about 30 seconds left, but I would love your final thoughts on this new phase of labor movement. Yeah, well, I think that we are going to continue to see um, students. In fact, I know there are a number of campaigns going on now, um, you know, organizing. And, I, you know, I think we're seeing it spread across campuses. We're just going to I'm just going to keep my eye on how the NLRB rules on the Duke case, because that could have really big implications for student organizing um, down the road. Thank you so much, Andrea. You've been listening to Andrea Shu, who's NPR's labor and workplace correspondent, as well as Arita Ochoria, who's an organizer with Local 33 and a graduate researcher in Genix. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And coming up next, we have Fairfield University professor Dr. Cecilia Bucky, who will dig into the history of the labor movement where we live. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And good morning. My name is Brendan Foley. I am joined by my wonderful colleague, Lee Newton, and we are taking just a little bit of time out of where we live this morning in that really incredible and important conversation about labor and the labor movement, uh, both past and present and future in the U.S., to uh, come to you with a with a, a plea for support. Today is the first ever Public Media Giving Days. Today and tomorrow, Public Media Giving Days, NPR, PBS, Connecticut Public, and public media television and radio stations all across the country are teaming up and asking for people to uh, both share what they love about public media, share what public media gives them in their daily lives, and also to give back to public media, to go ahead, to become a supporter, to make an extra donation, and keep this going strong. If you have been a longtime listener of Connecticut Public, but maybe you have never made a donation, today is a really great time to join the thousands of people across the country who will be taking part in Public Media Day. You can do so here with 
a phone call, 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788. You can also give online really fast, really easy at ctpublic.org. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Brendan. Yeah, this is really fun because this is an opportunity for us to hear from you. We really want to hear your public media stories, how this station has, you know, become your partner during the day. It's your partner uh, at work, maybe in the car. And it doesn't matter when you kind of discovered public media. It could have been as a kid. You could have maybe listened to it with your parents, or maybe you found it later in life. But tell us your story and make a contribution today at ctpublic.org or call us at 1-800-584-2788. We have an amazing goal and challenge in front of us. If we can reach $1,000 during Where We Live, our good friends at Feast and Fettle will do a dollar-for-dollar match. Feast and Fettle is a local fully prepared meal delivery service now available in Connecticut, and they are incredible partners to Connecticut Public Radio. We thank them for being a sponsor on Public Media Giving Days, Mm -hmm. and we're asking you to step up right now, just as they did, and make that contribution. Do it right now, ctpublic.org or 1-800-584-2788. And Lee, one of the things that I think is so wonderful that we're offering today uh, to all of those who uh, who would be interested in making a donation is our super fan collection. Yeah. So for $20 a month, uh, you can receive a I Love NPR Connecticut Public t-shirt. You can receive a really classy uh, NPR Connecticut Public black water bottle, which is just, it's got a great weight to it. It's a really oh, yeah. good water bottle. And a pair of our socks, which we lovingly call here within the station our boombox socks. So these are Connecticut Public branded socks, and they have all sorts of like microphones and retro radios and stereos on them. They're they're really, uh, they're really adorable. Um, if you like fun socks. You're going to love these socks. (laughs) So that is $20 a month. And we're only going to be offering this super fan collection uh, today and tomorrow. So $20 a month, you get the shirt, you get the water bottle, you get the socks. You could spend some time out and about the spring once the sun returns and really just show all of your Connecticut public pride. Yes, absolutely. And it's ordinarily $38 a month for that collection. So this is a great discount We really encourage you to step forward. Tell us your why. Tell us why you love public media, why you love Connecticut Public Radio. You know, Michael from Woodbridge has already made a contribution, and he says that Kion Wolf's Audacious series is just exceptional. That's why he gives... What about you? Tell us your favorite on-air personality, your gateway show that got you started Mm. on public radio. We'd really want to hear your stories right now when you make your contribution and support this wonderful uh, public media giving days done for the very first time. So join us right now. CTPublic.org is the website or call us at 1-800-584-2788. Back to where we live. And thanks so much. This is where we live from Connecticut. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about what's been going on with workers unionizing around the state. And here with us now to discuss the labor movement in Connecticut then and now is Dr. Cecilia Bucky. She's a Fairfield University history professor. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bucky. Hi, glad to be here. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dr. Bucky, you've been listening to this conversation since the beginning. You know, what are some of your responses to what you've heard about this new face of labor movement here in Connecticut? Oh, so much to unpack with uh, all of the uh, testimony we've been hearing. Um, A thing to recognize, of course, is that mostly have the new labor movement coming out of service work, uh, very different from the traditional labor movement, which of course is coming out of uh, industry, out of production, making things often in one big factory, as opposed to service work, which is does not produce a product, but rather provides services to a larger public. And uh, very hard as, um, you already heard, very hard to organize precisely because it tends to be small um, workplaces with a, a, a revolving set of, of uh, people doing the servicing and having a general public to, um, uh, um, to work with as opposed to producing things, which then get sold by the employer on the open marketplace. So it's a very different version of a traditional labor movement. And and, and it's not unexpected that there were going to be um, bumps and starts along the way. I'm impressed by how active it is. It's nationwide. And as someone mentioned, the, um, the labor movement has not been this active in decades. Um, the part of it is just the, uh, the the pandemic has certainly raised a lot of issues in terms of people, you know, relationships to work, uh, which is, of course, in itself a whole nother um, a whole nother segment of a possible future show. But the the service work issue is one that I think is going to come up again and again. The Starbucks is best example. You've got small stores everywhere but not more than 20 or 30 people actually in one store and they're all part-time. How are you going to organize them without a national strategy? And the Starbucks employers are very um, obviously taking that into account and, and refusing to try to pull together a, um, a bargaining position that would apply to all the, the recognized stores. Um, and so there's a lot of things going on. Um, that are not easily solved. But I do think the enthusiasm is just something to show. The uh, The fact that the labor movement, uh, the AFL-CIO, 
um, as a, a nationwide federation has been losing members is because industry has left the United States. Those jobs have disappeared over the, since 1980. And um, the, and even though there's some sign that industry is coming back to the United States. And so maybe we will see an uptick in union membership. The it's going to be uh, people in these new, these new uh, occupations, uh, whether it's higher education, whether it is services like uh, coffee shops, et cetera, um, or whether it's uh, Amazon uh, warehouses where, which is a whole new model of retail. Um, I'm not sure where else to go from here. I think we can go in so yeah. many different directions, as we yes. can see. And thanks for the show idea. Um, I, you mentioned Starbucks. So I want to take one more listen to a Starbucks employee, uh, Travis Glennie Tegmeyer. Okay. He works at the Corbin's Corner location in West Hartford, and which was the first in the state to unionize last year. And he talked about those uh, bumps and starts that you're just describing. So let's take a quick listen. The most of us who don't have our heads in the sand are aware that uh, wealth inequality is is in a bad place right now that you know things have changed things are changing a lot the last few years uh, you know democracy in the United States is not exactly what it once was and I I think this is sort of a this is one of the building blocks of a strong democratic society is, just groups of people who work together to get something done in in their community, uh, whether or not they coordinate with uh, a larger organization. We, I mean, we're just we're still just the people who work in the community. We work at your local Starbucks, and uh, we're a part of your lives. You're a part of our lives, um, and it's we just want to make it so that we can continue to do this work and not have to struggle to do it. Mm-hmm. What's your response to this sentiment, Dr. Bucky? You know, Travis explores, I mean, he's obviously a worker at Starbucks, but what he's talking about is a sentiment from many workers in the nation. Well, it's, this whole question of community, I think, is the most important part to underscores the kind of, of uh, uh, solidarity that you need to have a successful union because you're going up against very large corporate interests um, who have, of course, the interest of keeping the um, uh, wealth inequality what it is because it services them. Um, I, I I moved to New Haven. I'm speaking to to the uh, interests of the uh, Yale graduate students. Finally, they've got a recognized union and they're busy uh, negotiating. I, I actually moved to New Haven in the summer of uh, 1984, just as the local 34 clerical workers strike was starting. Um, and that was an incredible um, uh, uh, solidarity community or uh, a feel to it that was just incredible to um, experience. Uh, it, there are a lot of reasons why that strike did win. Um, and now we see 40 years later that uh, it's a very successful organization and thus has helped the local 33, the graduate students union, um, to come into existence and hopefully to help solve some of the impasse that um, is is being felt right now with the local 33 graduate students organizing. Um, I I take us back to where May Day actually started uh, in 
1886, uh, the Federal uh, Federation of Organized Labor, uh, which is a precursor to the American Federation of Labor, um, set out a plan. We will have eight hours um, and spread it throughout the United States. Um, and it became a huge community uh, surge to say, yes, on May 1st, which is traditionally when um, the old craft unions would organize uh, to a new contract for the coming year. This is mostly building trades, which, of course, are, are usually shut down during the winter months. Um, so so uh, uh, May 1 is when a new contract year begins. And so this organization decided to make May 1st the day for to strike nationally for an eight-hour day. Um, now, mind you, this is still a six-day work week. Saturday is a full working day, um, and so it's a 48-hour work week. But it was an attempt to um, take back the one's own time, as opposed to traditionally people work from sunup to sundown until the Industrial Revolution and uh, um, and people working not on their own farms or in workshops, but rather working for larger corporations, taking your time back. And um, we're not going to work for you all the live long day. We want, as, as the slogan goes, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. In fact, we want some of our own time back to make our own, to be able to educate ourselves, to have organizations, to, um, you know, to, to have community. And it was a combination of people at the workplace as well as the community that made a lot of these uh, early attempts to organize very successful. Now, the, that May Day, I want to jump a, in real quick, Dr. Bucky. Apologies yeah. that we're going to jump into a quick break, and but we will oh. be coming back and, and ah. digging into what you're just saying. Uh, you've been listening to Fairfield University Professor Cecilia Bucky. We will continue this conversation after a quick break, going back in time to Connecticut's fight for the eight-hour workday. What are your questions for her? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with me to discuss Connecticut's early labor movement is Dr. Cecilia Bucky. She's a Fairfield University history professor. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. want to jump straight back to our, uh, our history conversation, Dr. Bucky. You were just taking us back in time. May Day in America is often linked to the fight for the eight-hour workday out of Chicago. But... Connecticut had its part in this as well. Can you share with us what that was like, Dr. Bucky? Actually, it's it hasn't been well studied. Um, I don't know what happened in Connecticut on in 1886. Uh, I do know that uh, nationally there was a huge um, 
upsurge of support for this notion of an eight-hour day. Uh, I'll just mention that uh, in 1886, the so-called Haymarket uh, tragedy took place, where a um, a rally um, that that took place in Haymarket Square was interrupted uh, in support of striking workers for the eight-hour day, particularly of those who had been fired at a nearby, nearby metalworking plant. Um, that someone threw a bomb into the crowd, which was very sparse at this point, killing a couple policemen. And anarchists who had already left the stage were uh, accused of throwing that bomb, leading to the so-called Haymarket Martyrs, as they were called, who were all um, um, sentenced to be executed uh, for participation in this bombing. Um, a couple of them were actually, the rest were commuted by a governor a decade later. But that became a rallying cry throughout the Western world, especially with labor unions in Europe that decided that we will make Labor Day, May Day, in honor of the hate market martyrs of Chicago. So it winds up being a, a leftist uh, celebration of labor throughout the Western world, not not in the United States, however, um, and hence the Labor Day uh, that we celebrate in the United States is that first weekend in in uh, September. And we but got I about. Did, uh, oh, yeah. I was going to say, yes. Dr. Buggy, we we got yeah. about two minutes left, but I do want to ask you. You know, yeah. there's so much context yeah. to this, but how does this relate to the discussion that we're having about unionization today? Well, I just mentioned that the uh, this eight-hour day struggle goes on for a long time. Bridgeport, Connecticut had a summer 1915 strike wave for the eight-hour day, again in 1915, um, that uh, was generally successful for the war period, uh, went away uh, in the 1920s, and it was taken up again in the 1930s. And finally, the U.S. government and the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, in the midst of the Great Depression and thus the New Deal, does mandate a 40-hour work week. Um, that's where we get the five-day work week and the 40 hours, that is eight hours a day, which has been the law ever since. That's a long time to go with this kind of a standard of that sort. The, um, the issue, though, is about community. It's about uh, large numbers of working people coming together around a simple demand and, yes, going on strike. It's very difficult to do that these days when you have uh, workers, part-time workers, working at a lot of small places um it's it, you need a community to rally behind um workers going out on strike and supporting them uh because workers on their own are are powerless it's only when they all come together with a community support them that it will make a difference and i certainly hope that's going to happen in the near future there seems to be a lot of support for unionization uh around the country we'll have to see uh what comes of that thank you uh, so I, uh, I was yeah. gonna say that's the perfect way yep. to end this thank you okay. so okay. much for your time dr cecilia bucky she's the fairfield university history professor and i'm Catherine shen today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Dylan Reyes. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.
and you can contribute for Where We Live and Connecticut Public right now on Public Media Giving Days. This is the first time that we've ever done this. This is a national event that is in partnership with NPR, PBS, and Connecticut Public and stations all across the country. And it's a great time for you to join us and tell us your public media story. I'm Lee Newton. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Brendan Foley. And we invite you to join us at ctpublic.org slash donate. Or you can call us and make a contribution, 1-800-584-2788. And yes, we do realize that we were just here very recently (laughs) for the April Radio Drive this is a separate deal. It's just two days and two days really to just, as I say, tell us your public media story, mm-hmm. how you first came to listen. Uh, what was your kind of gateway show? Is there, you know, a story that you remember well or an on-air personality that you connected with? We really want to hear your story right now. So join us, ctpublic.org or 1-800-584-2788. And we would love to know, really, when you say your gateway show, Lee, I'm I'm open <laughs> to hearing about the specific episode or interview. And so I've been a longtime listener to public media, as a lot of people here at Connecticut Public obviously have. But I think of uh, some really seminal episodes. There's this incredible This American Life episode that featured a story of uh, comedian Mike Birbiglia talking about uh, sleepwalking. Mm. Uh, Uh, You know, some fresh air interviews that have just really stood out in my mind. There are so many stories out there that I know you listening right now, you can think back and think, man, that was a great interview. And it just sticks with you for months or years. That's what we're talking about when we say we want to hear your public media story. We have a big challenge this hour. So we have a a few minutes left during this hour of where we live. Uh, If we raise $1,000, Feast and Fettle will do a dollar for dollar match. You can double the impact of your donation. Feast and Fettle is a uh, local fully prepared meal delivery service that is available here in Connecticut. So this is a great way to double your donation. We are several hundred dollars in already. Just need a little bit more to go. The time is right. You can give us a phone call 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788. You can also give online at ctpublic.org. Yeah, and we already heard from Jonathan in West Hartford. Thank you so much for your contribution. We have a friend in Cost Cobb who also gave. Thank you. How about you? Can you call or go online, make a contribution right now? Maybe it's an additional gift and you're already a sustainer, but make a contribution and tell us why you love public media, why it's important to you in your life, and you'd miss it if it wasn't here. Mm -hmm. So easy to do, ctpublic.org, or you can call us at 1-800-584-2788. We really do appreciate your support. Thank you so much.